Hello, and welcome to the 20th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Sunday, the 11th of August, 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we start afresh with Chapter 7, the Workers' Government Slogan, and discuss the revolutionary potential of toilets. I have a bunch of new patrons to thank. Alan Horn, Corey Robert Fowler, Steve Robinson, Bernie Vapes, Michael Dola, John Patterson, Justin Bird, DFT1789, Enfalura Zak, Olaf Olafsson, Nathan Day, Cole N, and Redneck Black Flag, and also Jared Siller, who upped his pledge. This was one heck of a bumper week for our patrons, and we are well on the way to meeting our target for producing another patron-only podcast every fortnight. It really wouldn't be possible for me to produce all these episodes without your help, so an extremely big thank you to all the patrons. You too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. The voting has just finished yesterday on the choice for the next reading group series. In a final mad dash, Marx's 18th Brumaire has shot into the lead to beat Eric Olin Wright's Understanding Class by an arrow head. The new series will begin sometime in the autumn when we get all this revolutionary strategy stuff put to bed. So get your copy of the Brumaire in hand so you too can join in the fun. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Today we have a full panel. We've got all the way from sunny, warm Utah is Oil oil Drum Derek. Hello. Today we're going to talk about workers' (laughs) government and the mass strike. And other things that sort of kind of work, but not really. Excellent. Now then we're going flying across the East Coast up to upstate uh, New York slash posh Connecticut, where Alexi is in her boudoir. Going pretty well. But as uh, as people will know from New York, upstate New York is a distant, far off land. And I'm towards New York City, comfortably at the seat of bourgeois culture. And it's calming radioactive glow. So, so you're at the periphery of New York core? I am. Yeah, that's where I originate from. Although I'm not proper, you know, Brooklyn royalty on, on the podcast left, it, you know, it is in my blood. Are you an Islander? No, no. I, <laughs> I Actually, um, my like immediate family comes from Florida. My mom did a reverse retirement, you know, reverse Jewish retirement where instead of... <laughs> you know, growing old and, and going to uh, Florida. She was in Florida and moved to New York. I once went down a river in upstate New York in a dinghy and uh, there was a bear <laughs> in the river eating fish. Shit. And yeah, and we thought it was a dog because uh, it was quite far away. <laughs> so we're like, is that a dog? And then we got closer <gasps> and closer. We're like, oh no, that's a wild bear. And we're like, hey, what do we do? We were like, oh, right, let's go up and have a look. But it pissed off by the time he got there, which is quite lucky, I think. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, this luckily, that's, that's Black Bear's normal reaction is to get the fuck away from you, but they, they'll mess your day up. So. We got kicked off of a fucking uh, a federal kind of 
park camping place for you get... a nighttime <laughs> nighttime uh, alcohol related proclivity. How Irish are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, that's solid. That's real solid. It's, I'm a fan. It's pretty hard to get kicked off of one as well. Like it's really it's next to impossible. But there was like about I think the eight of us, and we really we went crazy. People were like asleep in fires and stuff like this. And then the, the next morning, the, the ranger came over to us and kicked us out. And we were all oh like God. in terrible, in terrible state. And like at, at eight o'clock in the morning, there was this Christian youth party beside us, up with their guitar, Ooh. singing songs. And we were like Ooh. laid strewn about, <laughs> covered in our own <laughs> vomit. You know, <laughs> like literally oh, no. like in urine stained all over ourselves pissed oh, ourselves and, uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, tom i don't know if i've ever been that drunk like you know like collectively ever? in in my life like if i took all the alcohol i drank and put it in me right now i don't know if i get there i have but only in other countries it doesn't count when you're <laughs> when you're in korea that's what i was told and also then we got Pilia returning again today for a second uh, sojourn at Mike McNair. Pilia, how's it going? Very good, Tom. How's it going with you? Good, 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 good. Right, let's crack into it. The workers' government slogan. Now, for me, there was two important parts in this. I really like the first part of this chapter where he goes on about talking about what would be the lay of the land post, say, a communist revolution and how we could expect the political landscape to change, much like, say, after, say, the, you know, American revolution, the US revolution, there was, you know, a kind of a, a death of any kind of Tory or royal parties and the same in, say, Ireland or somewhere where it's politically impossible to be like, for the British army or for the British state to be like a, a pro-British party. And he's going to talk about how the politics could change after it. Also, he talks about organizational forms. So what's wrong with, say, the Soviets as a, as a way to run the country? Will we crack right in and start doing a bit of reading? Lexi, do you want to read all this first page and we'll take it? I think it's all pretty good. Yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. So I'm just going to read this. I love this. The quote workers government slogan. Okay. In chapter two, I argued that the strategy of the mass strike founded on the need of the society for a central coordinating authority, the mass strike wave and the strike committees it throws up break down the existing capitalist framework of authority, but do not provide an alternative. The resulting dislocation of the economy leads to pressure for a return to the capitalist order. The Kautsky and Center solution to this problem was to build up the United Workers Party and its associated organizations, trade unions, etc., as an alternative center of authority. This gradual process could find its expression in the electoral results of the Workers Party. When it became clear that the Workers Party had a majority of the popular vote, the Workers' Party would be justified in taking power away from the capitalists and implementing its minimum program. If elections were rigged so that a popular majority did not produce a parliamentary majority, <clears throat> or legal or bureaucratic constitutional mechanisms were used to stop the Workers' Party implementing its program, the use of the strike weapon, force, etc., would be justified. 
So that's a special one for you Americans. In implementing its program, however, in Kautsky's view, the Workers' Party would use the existing state bureaucratic apparatus. This merely reflected the need of a modern society for professional administration. In this respect, Kautsky in his most revolutionary phase had already broken from the democratic republicanism of Marx's writings on the commune and critique of the Goethe program and Engels' comments in Can Europe Disarm? Derek, do you want to have a discussion, a talk there a bit about what is wrong with or right uh, with Kautsky kind of talking about just taking over the modern state instead of smashing it? Or is this language? Is this just language? I, I actually think it actually is significantly different. And Engels kept on chastising Kautsky for this. Although I would add that um, McNair is correct that Engels, towards the end of his life, while never abandoning insurrection, does end up putting a little more faith into possibly a workers' party having their hands on the levers of power as part of a greater revolutionary process than he would have normally allowed throughout his life. I got the feeling towards the end of his life, Engels thought that it could be done by democratic majority, but there would have to be some sort of force at hand both to uh, smash the state from within and also to be defensive because he figured that as soon as they actually had power, there they would be extra constitutional means applied. And Kautsky carries that over, right? Although Engels is more comfortable with an offensive than Kautsky. But, but I want to go back to Kautsky's main point about the mass strike problem, because when I read this in The Road to Power, like it kind of blew my mind. And I was like, why have I never thought of this before? Because I was one of those mass strikers, you know, economic revolution mm -hmm. first people. And then I thought about it and I'm like, wait, if we have a strike and there's no opposing power structure, what's going to happen? Well, McNair actually doesn't state this here, he states it elsewhere. You probably won't win because the capitalists have the resources. They'll, they'll starve you out. And we've mm -hmm. actually seen this in even limited strikes in real life. So that's a real limit to view. But let's say you do win. You also don't have any alternative power structure. And there's, it's funny because I was thinking about in that one, in that second paragraph in this, before we get to where Kowski's wrong, there's so much modern lefty misunderstanding addressed in one paragraph. So what, what that second paragraph is, is the actual like pre-Lenin, although Lenin is the person who calls it this strategy of dual power. <laughs> And the dual power strategy is literally like you have all these alternate forms of association, which could basically serve, serve functions of the state. Now, this has real limited use when the state's actually working because the state has more resources than you by definition. But the reason why you have this is when you have the revolution or when you have the strike or even the democratic, you know, the, the quote unquote democratic revolution, when those state organisms fight back, you need alternate authority structures to contend with them. And having seen this in, I don't know, real life, because I was in Egypt right after when the counter-revolution happened, that was a case of where they, they, they had to rely on all the existing institutions with most of the, with the, uh, the same existing functionaries. And also it didn't help that the Muslim Brotherhood was kind of incompetent, that they could be both sabotaged from within and have their own incompetency throw their democratic revolution to the wind. And then to, in react to that, they would have executive overreach, which would then give legitimacy to deposing them. All right. And that's what happened. And that's perfectly predictable from what Kowski's talking about here. And that's not even a socialist revolution, right? That's just a kind of a quasi-bourgeois democratic one against the military hunt, hunter with some reactionary elements involved. 
you see the same thing play out. So Kowski's right on that. Where things get weird is he just seems to think that you could use the the bureaucratic constitutional program not only solely defensively, but that you don't really have to dismantle the state because there's a lot of risk to dismantling the state. Right. Kowski points this out over and over again. There's a ton of risk to this. There's all kinds of infrastructure and things that would end it, you know, lead to a reactionary backlash and failure. And again, we can kind of see this actually happen in Russia, although the Reds won. What really gave the white army an ability to recruit was before the NEP really took off and the Soviets, uh, I mean, the Bolsheviks were really struggling to come up with a viable economic program. But if they never dismantled the state at all and its essential institutions, its logics have a kind of teleal, you know, they're designed to produce one kind of thing. And they were designed in liberal democracy, mostly mostly in service to bourgeois capital. And they're gonna not going to really work that well otherwise. And I mean, arguably, one of the even one of the chief sins of the Bolsheviks is they didn't smash the state enough. Yeah, that's the thing about the Bolsheviks that are frightening is that they did as close to dismantling the state as you could hope for in communist history and then sort of de facto recreate it. Because yeah, I mean, they create most of the structures of the society that they were from. Did yeah. They not just directly take them over as well. They, they 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 did a lot of times they would dismantle them and then like when it failed they would just kind of reinstitute it. It's kind of like you know debathification in, in Iraq. It was the same sort of process. Oh, we can't yeah. really do this. Shit. Well, at least find some people who are willing to be loyal or you know or whatever after we are willing to liquidate their families if they don't do it to become you know functionary bureaucrats. This didn't happen as much in, in Russia as it did in some other places, but it did happen. And the other thing is a lot of the, the forms of government started resembling forms under the czarist government. And the liberal historians point this out all the time. And, you know, uh, right. a lot of Marxists get really pissy when you point this out. But it is true, for example, that the, the Ukraina and the, the NKVD, particularly after Iron Felix was, was not in charge, they started looking more and more alike. Yeah, but like liberals and especially like liberal conservatives will paint this to the like, like an Orientalist picture of a semi-Asiatic, you know, Russian national character that's just seething with despotism as no, opposed to... As opposed this, to what? Like Britain where the same thing happened after it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, right, right. But th that's like the straw man of this argument. But the stronger form of this argument, I think, should give us some sympathy for the Orthodox Marxists that are like... Dude, what are you going to do when you smash the Democratic Republic? Like, what do you even do? Like, and maybe we don't like the kind of limited bourgeois Democratic Republics that we have, but the classical Marxist tradition did see, you know, bourgeois democracy as democratic in yeah, some important sense. And Kautsky, in his most revolutionary days, I think the reason that he was able to sound like a Marxist is that he didn't really consider the representative organs of the state to properly be the state. Right. You know, when, when Marx and Engels are talking about the state, say in the 1850s or something, that's an entirely smaller thing to the state today, you would have thought. Like there was no ministry of health, no ministry probably of transport, no ministry of this, that and the other. A lot of it was yeah, more about collecting taxes, war, the cops, if they existed, and the army. 
you know, right, and, right. you know, like the that's what. They, so when but, they're talking but, about the state, that's what they were talking about. I don't know that I totally destroying... believe that though, Tom, that because well, he does throw. I mean, I, I, the reason why I say that is Marx uses a, Marx actually did seem to know what was going on in America, where there was at the state level, not at the federal level, and this is still kind of true, something like a welfare state, because he keeps on talking about LaSallian, um, LaSallian talking points. Mm-hmm. It's like the critique of the Gotha program. It's that same thing where he, he he's not in favor of tying the, you know, a welfare state to the state, to the capital well, yeah, Exactly. It, it's interesting. It's, there are some things that he that people miss. Like, I, I used to point out that while, like, it wasn't like that Marx would have supported charter schools or whatever, or the privatization of education. He thought like making every other than licensing teachers, which he explicitly mentions is okay. He thought that like trusting the state to do all the, your educational functions was insane. Like it was like a grounds for hyper propaganda. It, it's, it's interesting that like that's the Kalski and program drops all that. And you know, Ingalls, I would say not really. I had someone who was like cheerleading the Arfurt program and interesting both communist and social Democrats. I know we're, we're getting into this. And I pointed out Ingalls endorsed it, but cautiously he wrote an Arfurt critique, just like there was a Gerfurt critique. And he kept on talking about how they misunderstood socialization as national as, as nationalization and that socialism as a function of a national state. And he just chastised Kalski for it relentlessly. And then Kalski wrote The Road to Power, which played a lot of those elements down. Interestingly enough, a lot of the Bolshevik fanboys today and a lot of the social Democrat anti-Bolshevik fanboys today actually <laughs> ignore a lot of Ingalls's critique of the offer program. And I, I think this is actually directly relevant here because the idea that you could use all the state functionaries and just like democratically control them without changing them very much, just change their orientation. I think Marx would say, you know, the democratically control them, you actually ha- have to fundamentally break them in a way that doesn't look like what Kowski was actually arguing for. Because Kowski's conception of socialism does seem like Lasallianism. And I, I know for our listeners, mm-hmm. You aren't up on the nuances of socialist history. That sounds like I'm just using jargon, but but Lexi, can you feed into that a little bit? Yeah, so I I follow McNair as using LaSalle as a sort of signpost for the right socialist strategy of buddying up with anti-bourgeois forces like that are kind of previous ruling classes. So Ferdinand LaSalle, as a hero of the German labor movement, famously was seeking Otto von Bismarck, the great Prussian militarist, and Prussian being a forerunner to Germany here, trying to get his help in fighting capitalism, essentially. And this is like a right-wing social strategy par excellence that we associate with uh, LaSalle, which maybe is a bit of a sad way to remember him because he seemed like a a solid dude. I think there's a little bit bit more than that, though. It's not just signing up for the anti-bourgeois elements. It's also LaSallean's clear usage of the forms of the bourgeois state in ways that weren't even as radical as, like, the bourgeois state in America is. That was his, that was Marx's, oh, not McNair's. I mean, that's it's not even just the bourgeois state. It's it's a you know aristocratic militarist state. It's a pre-bourgeois state that he's willing to align with in order to right. curtail bourgeois forces from even like forming in a proper state like the Weimar Republic or something. Yeah, and you know what? So, 
I would say a lot of anti-imperialism actually does this explicitly. So yes, that's why it's a, it's a strategy that has outlasted the time. And Lasallian is the way that I as I say it. But maybe we should find another term. Uh, why did you say that, Derek? That anti-imperialism does this, like with aligning with uh, oh, man. like the rabbit Assad hole. people. Because a lot of times there's talk of national bourgeoisie versus comprador bourgeoisie, and they actually see the comprador, a.k.a. the international bourgeoisie, as more repressive than the national one, which is nutty. Like, you'll see these socialist governments, particularly in Africa, use, like, tribal rights, tribal land right claims and stuff, as their grounds for allegiance with, with like, kind of old aristocracy or, pre, you know. And the idea there is, like, you know, it comes from the greater contradiction logic of Mao, but LaSalle had already kind of justified that. And I, you know, like a lot of the legitimate objections to anti-imperial politics are not really about anti-imperialism, although some of them are, some of them are just chauvinism, but some of the more good faith ones point out that, that you keep on homogenizing these prior groups and pretending like there's no class struggle within a society, that there's just the imperial capitalist and somehow everybody else even if those everybody else are pre-bourgeois, are pre, you know, so that if there's no bourgeois form, there's no proper workers form either. And you're conflating like the dispossessed or the oppressed with the workers. And you're conflating oppression levels as if it's just one homogenous national whole, as opposed to a very complicated society. And while, and while Marx did kind of legitimize um, national struggles, this idea that that it was in itself going to just put in there and that was going to be your primary means for revolution. That's like starting at step five back and, and calling it a day. Because one of Marx's points about the anti-imperial struggles is they actually resemble the anti-imperial struggles in Europe, which were against, I don't know, that fucking Habsburgs. And it wasn't even capitalist imperialism. Very early Marx actually even thought that imperialism was good because it was spreading enlightenment values to the rest of the world. And only, you know, Marx moved away from that later. Yeah, but I think I think that anti-imperial situation, like, for instance, if we're talking about, you know, the American state's encroachment on Hawaii, you know, it kind of makes sense to align yourself with the Hawaiian monarchy and maybe to look at the previous class structures as maybe something idyllic. And then I'm talking about for the Hawaiian population like that. It, that's probably the strongest case for Lasallian politics. And you, as a communist, avoiding chauvinism and trying to like root out chauvinist versions of this argument, you kind of have to make the argument that a Lasallian, you know, strategy is a losing strategy. Well, anyway. what you have to point out is if the, what, what would Hawaii have done if it had maintained independence? It would have developed its own capitalist class under leadership of the aristocracy, or it would have been taken over by somebody else. So those are the only real two viable options. They would have created a lot more, a lot more good kind of uh, ukulele music. Uh, instead, yeah. of the, instead of the shitty hipster, like white people ukulele music we have now. Yeah, correct. I mean, um, I, like, I get, I so, get it. When you, when you look at Hawaii or the Native Americans, why you feel that way? It, it might have been better for them to have their own bourgeoisies, you know. Like, it's not hard oh, to see I why. Actually th I actually think it would have been better, but they would have been caught yeah. in the international struggle, and would have it would have yes. ended looking very much. the The example you wanted, the example that's perfect for this, Japan. Yeah. Okay. No. 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 That's I, that is a, it's a solid. It's solid. But if you're Japanese, you might prefer that. <laughs> well, of course you do until you also try to do it to other people. I mean, that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. It's like the the idea that a lot of Marxists have, this is relevant to this, 
um, this is a rabbit hole that we warned you about. But the idea that a lot of Marxists have that like you could arrest this development once the exposure to the capitalism has happened, there's no mm. evidence for that anywhere on earth. None. Yeah. And then this idea that, yeah, I mean, self-autonomy would be good, but the market's still going to dictate. And and particularly in a nation like Hawaii or a nation like Japan, where your alienations and your resource limited, it's going to dictate even more because mm-hmm. you couldn't be self-sufficient. I, I, I remember listening to, uh, on a kind of semi-related note, I was only taking the piss there about the, the ukulele music, but... I was listening to uh, BBC Radio 4 about 10, 15 years ago, and it had this program called From Our Foreign Correspondent. And they basically have, you know, foreign correspondent in China or, you know, any place it could be. And they're usually like these tough and old journalist hacks. And they had this one guy on and he, he was one of those. He was a hardened like war journalist or something. And for some reason, he was off in the South Pacific and he got to this like island where there was like, I don't know, a few hundred or I don't know how many people, not very many people. And it was really, really difficult to get to. It's not on any trading route or anything. And like you have to literally go there and specifically to go there. And it takes you like three or four or a week sailing to get to this goddamn island. And he got there and he was like, he was saying like, you could tell it in his voice. He was nearly crying. He was saying like, it's the most perfect society. (laughs) He said like, you know, Everybody, when they have their first child, they have to give it to somebody else who can't have children. And so everybody has like all of their ch- kids are all kind of really communal. And you, they were interviewing like the, the chief guy or something. He was saying like, you know, what's your biggest problem at the moment? And he says, well, you know, with the youth, it's um, the ukulele music is kind of getting out of hand. It's like they don't do any of our old songs. <laughs> Everything is just with the ukuleles. <laughs> and it was like, that was the greatest social problem they had. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I was like, God, I want to go to this goddamn island. It sounds like the greatest place ever. They're basically just all living in communism. So yeah. far off the beaten but- track with ukulele. Ukulele communism. <laughs> <laughs> That's their means of production of the ukuleles. <laughs> How'd they get anything out there? Create verse. <laughs> like, not very interesting how they give the first child to somebody else. That's yeah, a remarkable think... custom. Like, that that, ob- that obviously would build some kind of solidarity that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Also, you know, from my perspective, hard to imagine instituting something like that in this society. It's fascinating how all the Evo psych people point out that that would say that that doesn't make any sense. And then you're like, yo, it, do- it totally does. Because you're actually you tend to share DNA with your kinship group. So like, and your kinship group is usually really large. So even from the most radically reductionist, which I think it's probably wrong anyway, it would still make sense. But why does no one do it? Well, there's other reasons, right? Like, it has nothing to do with genetics. Well, there's a lot of things that don't make sense in Evo psych world <laughs> that humans do. Like yeah. everything. Like, like, yeah, yeah, like, like it's yourself. all goddamn rubbish. How about that? Yeah. Or like, is, that a, is that a hot take, or is that just like the scientific community's take? No, it's actually pretty. It's it's pretty divided in comparative biology, which is actually the only field that could probably make a solid judgment on it. But most people think a lot of Evo psych is just those th- stories. But th- like, I have to admit, I think conceptually Evo psych has to be kind of baseline true. But I've never seen any conclusions drawn from it that had any that stood up to any comparative biology. Not just your genes. So, you know, 
also well, the yeah. environment. You're, well, the, the whole genetic environment distinction when you think about genetic triggers is really fucking like even not even introducing epigenetics. Like it's just not that valid, right? Because half half your genes won't manifest. We're not going into genetics. Cutting it there. Oh, excuse me. Like scientific materials likes tables, but not actual science. Got it. Correct. And wooden tables, Derek. <laughs> wooden tables. Now here, I kind of wanted to get back a little bit. I know we've been off on a half hour tangent, but I wanted to get back a little bit towards this idea of smashing the state. It would seem to me like that when we we're talking earlier in the book, how, you know, they were talking about how the state in its most crude form is an armed group of men. And I think definitely in a revolutionary period, you kind of need to break up definitely that part of the state or, you know, and completely re realign it quite quickly. But I think parts of the modern state, like, say, like the social welfare system that are around now, that is not something that's easily smashed immediately. Like it would seem to me in a revolutionary transitional period, like to get all of those functions that are currently in the state and change how they operate and make them largely democratic is kind of like not the emergency smash the state stuff. That's more of a kind of like implementing what you want. And look, just like, say, implementing a, a planned economy, you can't just smash the entire economy and then the planned economy will work just immediately. It's like there'll be 10, 15 year programs. They're very, very complex programs. So I just like, I think this, the idea of smashing the state has to be kind of teased apart. Well, th th this is interesting because I think one of the traditional Marxist answers to, to it and one the anarchists picked up on is that you subsume those functions before you take power through mutual aid societies or whatever. But that only works at a, at a, at a level of development that we're not at anymore, right? That does seem to be the elephant in the room for that strategy. So somebody was like, we can build. I was literally talking to somebody who I respect deeply, actually. But they were telling me that we needed to have like workers healthcare clinics and stuff without licensed doctors. And I'm like, that's not going to go well. Say, for example, like payment systems. Let's mm -hmm. say in the morning there's a revolution and PayPal and the clearing houses decide or we shut them down. Like that day, the economy shuts down. Right. And it's not like you're going to be able to democratize or change the basis of how all that works overnight. It's just an impossibility, the complexity of those systems. Right. Which like, is why systems like labor tokens are always considered, you know, even though I have my issues with labor tokens, that's like that is a transitional form because that's something you can start substituting in to phase the other out. OK, so I think we've kind of done that page to death. Will we move on a little wee bit. And see what we got. I, um, I think we might want to try to move on, yes. I've already argued in chapter two that the belief that all power to the Soviets represented an alternative political authority was mistaken. The Russian Soviets came closer than any other historical body of workers' councils to creating a national political authority. They did so because until 1925, the Mensheviks and SR leadership continued to believe that they had the majority in the Soviets nationwide and one which could serve as a support for the provisional government pending the creation of a continuant assembly proper, i.e. a parliamentary democracy. No other reformist or bureaucratic mass party has made such a mistake of using its own resources to develop a national coordination of workers' councils. So far, <laughs> left formations or alliances have proved able to create such a coordination against the will of the existing mass parties. Like that's an important freaking point there. 
Like mm -hmm. no other reformist or bureaucratic mass party has made the same mistake of using its own resources to develop a national coordination of workers' councils. You know, maybe somebody like the British Labour Party under Corbyn or something, maybe they could actually, maybe they'd be up for doing it. But like, God damn it, the Labour Party under Blair, could you imagine the goddamn thing happening? Right. No. I, well, I was actually thinking about this. I keep everyone always tells me that the that there are workers co-ops that have dual power functions in Venezuela that work this way. That the Venezuela apologists do. I I just find that it can't be true because there wouldn't be a strong executive in such a system, right? There just there pretty much couldn't be. I'm w waiting to see how the historical record shakes out on that because the claims would be extremely significant if true. McNair has a wide enough like understanding of history to make such a sweeping claim. I wonder if there is an, an asterisk to that. The, the claim is right. That it's not just that, you know, reformists are bureaucratic mass party. Now that's interesting. That's, that's vague, but it's yeah. big. Cause like so this, this, a bureaucratic mass party. Arguably. Right. Depends. Mass party. I mean, this, this wouldn't cover, let's say the Swiss, you know, cantons like the, the old democratic, like, form or or maybe like the even like the hungarian diet or something like that right but those are pre-capitalist forms too right exactly 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 how about vermont how about vermont yeah that's a pre-capitalist form too tom yeah. <laughs> right here let me read this paragraph because this is a bit of a bomb of a paragraph i think so he's talking about sovnarcom which is a basically the, the replacement executive and they were it was made up of who People's commissioners. Okay. And who are they? I, I think the way that the old Soviet system worked was that like the councils had like, I don't know, like a section of councils could send one delegate to this like greater, more important council, which could then send its, <laughs> then had like another order of delegate system. And then there eventually was the central, the central body, which had the oh, representative yeah. of the representative of the councils of the, you know, all like all the way down. This was a thing that Cockshot was critiquing from a, like a kind of statistical point of view that if you had a small majority at the, one of the lower levels, you'd end up with basically a massive, totally dominated majority of the top levels. Yeah, I would really love to see what Cockshot has to think about this because, you know, I'm kind of partial to his choice by lot. Yeah, he's written a critique yeah. of this book. Yeah, and this is one of the things he critiques, I think, the most, actually. I was just going to say that, yeah, I think Cockshot has like a, like his vision for socialism is like something I find pretty agreeable. Yeah, even though I disagree with, obviously, his, obviously I think his economics is awful, but uh, like his other work is pretty good. Anyway, what were you saying? It Sorry. is pretty good. Like my favorite part as well of that one, what is it, towards a new socialism or whatever, is how you can reduce mm -hmm. the number of toilets by living in commune, particularly <laughs> like that bit. I don't know. It's such a strange thing to bring up where he was talking about the waste of like number of toilets. It's like you couldn't pick a worst thing to actually <laughs> say to people. I know what we could do. We could all share our jacks. <laughs> be brilliant. Did he use like queuing theory? I bet you could use queuing theory to like see what the like, utilization of toilets is. <laughs> like, man, I went to a Catholic boarding school and at night. We used to, there was three toilets between 100 people. I'm telling you, you don't want that. Oh. You'd like be standing on your tippy toes in an inch full of piss. Absolutely oh. terrible. <laughs> see, see that, what, what you need, though, is just an efficient piss trough. 
and three toilets. That would take care of most of your problems. That would, right. but like, you know, the <laughs> toilets themselves are so dirty, Derek, that you wouldn't be able to sit down on the on the toilet. So you'd have to kind of levitate to do a, a dump. And frequently people would miss oh, and their dump would land on the rim. And like, oh, <laughs> you'd oh. have to go to the drag. <laughs> and it'd be just like oh, God. A, long, a long stool just lining its way around the rim of the toilet. And you know like, what? Oh. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we should just double down on bourgeois liberty and everyone has like a self-cleaning robot toilet in their room or something. <laughs> you know, because I don't, th- I don't I think, think collective bathrooms are a good idea anymore. <laughs> you know, we could do some modeling. We could, we could do some serious modeling of this. <laughs> uh, well, you could also design something more efficient than a toilet because, you know, living in places that don't have them, there are more efficient ways to poo. You could beam the matter out of yourself like in Star Trek. Or you could just do those those fun squat toilet things that they have in 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 East Asia, and get your your upper your your core strength really good. I, I had to squat for five years in boarding school, you know, where you were just living in fear of the toilet. Uh, I swear to God, I don't ever want to squat again. Like it was so bad. Like one day I was annoying this guy. I I took the piss out of him, and he was older than me, a big guy, and he ran into the jacks after me. And I, I jumped into the jacks and I closed the door. There's only three for the whole floor. And he jumped on top of the bowl of, of his other toilet so we could climb over to beat the crap out of me. But the entire bowl shattered and he got his foot landed right in a big lump of shit. And all the water and the piss flowed all over the toilet. And then we had three toilets between <laughs> 200. <laughs> the whole floor wasn't able to use them. But, uh, that's that's mice. My hatred of I, I'm gonna try and read this. We've been trying to actually start this podcast for about 25 minutes. This has got to be the worst podcast of all time. Or the best. You know. Oh, I mean, I think I think uh, uh, Robert Foyer would be really proud of the way we've routed our ADD into something productive. <laughs> Was, oh, was it Charles Foyer? God, yeah, Robert Foyer. Anyway, we're done. I'm done. Ma- maximum <laughs> toilet theory. Let's talk about Savnarcom. One more yeah. before we start. They one more. They had this really strange rule in boarding school, right? That at ten o'clock your lights were out, and then you weren't allowed to go to the toilet. No one's allowed to go to the toilet until eleven o'clock. Oh, so oh, what did you do? Time for a piss. You wouldn't. You just well. Sometimes you piss in a bottle or a sink if you were lucky to have one in your in your room. <laughs> oh, so, no. But what they used to do, actually, do you know, like people used to do, is they used to piss into like an empty bottle, you know, like a, a like a Coke bottle, yeah. a big one or something, and they would use it as a hot water bottle because it was so cold. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like yeah, they could use it to keep themselves warm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I've lived in places where that's common practice, actually. Where? Um, and when it gets super fucking cold in, in, in some of the places in um, Southeast Asia during the winter, because it's not cold enough for most of the year to necessitate actually having a heater, they use uh, hot water bottles and, and they use these little heat packs. But when you run out of that or when you really have to pee and you can't go to the outhouse, some of these places don't have indoor centralized plumbing. You pee in a plastic container, seal it up and use it as a hot water bottle. Use it to keep your hands warm. Well, I'm glad to hear like, just me. You're not the only weirdo. It, it, it occurs to many. It occurs to many people that urine is warm. <laughs> ah, it's so warm. It's so Maximum warm. efficiency in communism, people. 
<laughs> All okay. heating will be done with urine. With your own urine. <laughs> oh, you yeah. walk around with self-urinating clothes. God, you know the geodesic. Who's the guy who did the geodesic dome? And then we'll get back on top. Um, Engelbert Herkerbinker or something like that. Yeah, I mean the, the guy, the guy, the guy who actually came up with that. He was like this technocrat utopian, but he actually has long tracks about more efficient ways to process um, waste. And it wasn't it wasn't like everybody gets to share a toilet, but it was just like, um, like the future sounded like techno composters is what it sounded like. He's like, why are you wasting all that nitrogen? I'm like, yeah, why are you wasting all that nitrogen? His name is our bookminster Fuller. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Buckminster Fuller. Fuller. Yeah, there's whole like long descriptions of what he thinks future toilets would be like. It's not just Cockshot who's had this idea, although I think Fuller's discussions were actually probably better. Yeah, I'm just going to say it right now. I don't want to have to deal with the bathroom system designed by Paul Cockshot for a number of reasons. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ooh, oh, yeah. Ooh. Okay. All right, let's move on. Let's get going. <laughs> okay, I am going to read this. If it fucking kills me, I'm going to read this paragraph. Okay, everything shut <laughs> the fuck up. Right. Once I get started, I can't stop. Five years of fucking hell. Okay. Sounds That's like it. hell, Tom. It really does. That's good stuff, like... That's the good shit. Okay. <laughs> okay wait, wait. I'm going to read it. Read it. Nor could Sarkovnarkov uh, base it itself fully on the Soviets and their militia aspect. As I have said, the Soviets did not attain a governing character, but met pure episodically rather than in a continuous session. The militia proves insufficient to hold back either the Germans or the whites, so that Sarkovnarkov was forced to create a regular army and with it a bureaucratic apparatus. The problem of authority over the state bureaucracy was unsolved. Lenin and the Bolshevik fell back on the, uh, the forms of authority in their party, and as these proved a problem in the Civil War, almost unthinkingly militarized their party and created a top-down bureaucratic regime. You know what's, okay. funny, about, you know what's <laughs> funny about this, though? This same problem actually came up in the context of the American Revolution, and frankly, and I know I'm going to get shit for saying this, George Washington handled it better. Yeah, it's true. Ooh. It's really true. <laughs> <laughs> the leader actually refused to militarize. Even in the context of rebellions and civil war, the executive structure along the lines of the military. And it took, and interestingly, it took a military leader not to do it. And this is something I've thought about a lot because um, we talk about party structures, but almost all the party structures are, are, are post. Uh, but yeah, Breslikov's treaty actually screwed everything up for everybody. You know, I actually do think that the left comms along Duvet's lines have a point when they point out that pretty much when the left SRs broke with the Bolsheviks and the there was no attempt of expansion because of the, the Breslikov Treaty, that things were pretty much done. They were going to go to where they went. I just think this idea that he says here about the Soviets not being in continuous session, like that's really fundamental. Like if you're talking about organizational forms, if you look in the bourgeois state, the cabinet or the House of Representatives or the stuff like they're always meeting. They're always there to be able to discuss whatever the hell is going to go on, going down in the country. Like well, that's you have... not true in the United States, actually. But the executive's always meeting, which actually probably is why the executive is more and more powerful over time. Like, I'm, it's not just, you know, I'm not being, I'm not, I'm not trying to be specific. Like it depends where you are and what what's meeting. But even like, you know, it's not like they meet once a month, right? Yeah, that's They're true, meeting yeah. 
every day of the week. And if things come on, you're looking at Brexit now. So basically, the parliament has been in nearly full on session, like sometimes for like, you know, like nearly a month or two every single day, 12, 14 hour days, like really crazy hours that when it's needed, like the organizational structure is based upon the need. And I think like so this idea of of the Soviets being able to to rule the Soviets themselves, the, the Sovnarkoms at the top mo- layer of it didn't really, it looks like, reflect the bottom layers that well. Yeah, and it I, couldn't because if 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 the top layer did, the, the top layer would have to, it wouldn't be able to create a, a bureaucratic apparatus because it would all have to work constantly to be a part of the workers' government, right? Like that's sort of yeah. the issue here. Well, I don't know. If, like, you could imagine just the representatives getting taken off. I think it's like, say, if there was a massive change among, say, the bottom base, and mm-hmm. the way Narcom was based, like, it wouldn't reflect itself up to the top. And what ended up, like, happening, you see, is that, the, like, the Soviets didn't control Narcom really. In reality, Narcom probably just became its own goddamn bureaucratic apparatus. Right. And, well, yeah. it definitely did. So they created a, they created an army that had a bureaucratic apparatus, and then the Bolsheviks, in response to that, had to further militarize their already kind of militarized party. And they had to maintain that during the Civil War, but that that's what leads to the structures you see under Stalin, where you have and I mean this is even true in like South Korea, like I mean North Korea, excuse me, in North Korea where there is actually like a fair amount of local democracy, but there was under feudal conditions in these places too. You know, you have a communist leader claiming a a, a holy bloodline, the Bekju bloodline, the Bekju Minyuk. And so, like, yeah, it doesn't scale up. And that's kind of always been a problem with with Councilist Left Communism is, like, they really haven't ever dealt with the scale-up problem. If you think about the Soviets are just the workplaces, where there are Soviets for everybody, like, were there regional Soviets? They they were regional. Like, women and women and old people and stuff like that no they were workers it, workers it was it was what it sounds like it was workers i think there's a council of workers a council in the german equivalent there's a there's a workers council a soldiers council and uh what was the third one i forgot um, what the you third know, one was. wait wait so what workers peasants and soldiers yeah it's workers peasants and soldiers cancels but the 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 soldiers cancels couldn't react quick enough to deal with reaction that's actually like kind of objectively true and this is this is a communist problem in general, but they they killed a lot of their generals, which you know totally makes sense. The generals suck, but then yeah. when they were up against the Freikorps, and this is the German situation, when they were up against the Freikorps, they had no one who was confident enough to outman them. This is kind of like this is a problem. This is not something I've seen easily dealt with. And and I think it points to why the Orthodox Marxists were so squeamish about destroying the existing democratic institutions. It's because of this problem of authority that pops up. It doesn't mean that you abandon revolution or, or an image of smashing the state necessarily, but it, you know, it should give you some sympathy for why people do abandon that idea. This isn't just being a lib. You know, there's, there's a problem, right? You must I mean, grapple with it. This is something where, I've, where, where where you talk to like in the 90s when I would talk to modern anarchists and you would throw this stuff out. And they'd be like, what do you mean? And I'm like, in, a, in our actual position, if you screw up on this, hundreds of thousands of people die. 
All right. Um, All power to the Communist Party. Okay, I'm going to read this one. The Second Congress of the Common Turn in 1920, in its theses on the role of the Communist Party in the proletarian revolution, recognized this reality that it is a party or parties and a government created by a parties or parties that compose an alternative form of authority to the capitalist order. But these theses over theorized this recognition and carried with it organizational concepts that prevented the working class as a class exercising power through the Communist Party and communist government. That's a pretty oh. sick burn, actually. Yeah. I don't think people realize how big of a burn that is. Yeah. I just want to say, so begins the part where he delivers on his promise to look at the 21 theses and critically engage with them, like thesis by thesis, and even just like section of a thesis by section, which is something I haven't seen all that often done in anything like Good Faith. McNair is unique. Yeah, um, people avoid this text like, the, I mean, even people who supposedly support it avoid this text like the plague. Mm -hmm. Like, like thesis five, I think is like transparently not true. Political power can only be seized and led by a political party and in no other way. I can think of plenty of counterexamples of that. Only when the proletariat has a leader as a leader an organized and tested party with well-marked aims and a tangible worked out program for the next measure to be taken. Not only at home, but also in foreign policy with the conquest of political power, not appeal or as an accidental episode, but serve as a starting point for the permanent communist construction of society by the proletariat. Which, by the way, is self-refuting at this point for people who love this because there was no permanent communist construction society by the proletariat. It's not permanent. It doesn't exist anymore. So you say the, early, earlier on you said there's loads of ones that seize power without a political party. Give us a few. There was no political party in most of the bourgeois revolutions that led it. Not a singular party. There was not. The he way says that our parties as well. He says parties. Well, no, 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 no. That is oh, what McNair says. That is not what the thesis says. And so there's an ambiguity about the word party here that makes it kind of hard to talk about. And I think, Derek, you're maybe right to be skeptical of this equivocation. But the reason why I think McNair thinks that this stands up is because he looks at something like the American Revolution and broadly says there was like a Whig party system. I don't see any reason why political power can't be taken by something other than a party. There's no, you know, theoretical reason why it can't be. Yeah, because a party's not a junta, and juntas take over countries all the time. The defensible form of this argument uses the previous Marxian conception of party, and not the Kautskian conception of party that he's been working with for most of the book. But we know that the thesis five is not working from the Marxian conception of party or the Kautsky conception of party. It's working from the Bolshevik conception of party. Well, right. Correct. So, like, I think McNair is not quoting this, this one entirely critically. I think he's trying to say that thesis five expresses, like, in part expresses the notion that, that you know, th there has to be an alternative form of authority to the capitalist order and that it's parties and a government created by these parties. That, that does so. Because we he, so far, he's been quite serious about taking up this question of an alternative order, right? Let, let's talk about good, like reading the words as is and not the words as we would like them to be. But McNair, I'm, I'm actually critiquing McNair here directly. And in no other way. It's just not true. That's not a true statement. It is not sure. true. Coups in... Uh... In imperial places, they happen without parties all the time, don't they? You know, the yeah. colonial 
places. They just get cooed out of it. There's no party form there. Military you know, rulers take over all the time without a party form. Like, yeah. I, I think it's probably, it. you know, you're right, it is true. But I, I think if we're talking about communist political power, I think that's maybe what the point is trying to get to. I'm not sure, though, because he's making analogies to the liberal revolutions. Right. And he, but Who he's is? having McNair. Uh, McNair. But this is not McNair. This is a direct quote from the theses. I'm saying that in the theses, they say political power can only be seized. They're talking about communist political power now. I don't think they're talking about in all time well, ever. That, that's true. And that's why I'm more interested maybe in what McNair is making of the thesis than the thesis itself. But Derek's intuition is also on point that we should be thinking about what the thesis means in context and then also talk about what McNair means is drawing out of it because there is okay. part of thesis five that he endorses. Or it might be more correct statement if it's that uh, it's more likely that a communist party will take power if organized by a political party. You know, I think that would be a true statement. It wouldn't take much to make this more conditional statement than it is. But like the Bolsheviks weren't one for conditional statements. That's true. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, and Swampside Chats. <laughs>